I've got to kind of rebuild our front here for a quick second. As is always the case, the praise team is getting bigger. The kids can go. Yeah. Dave, you know, I almost think it's masochism that you volunteered to remind me. Kids, kids are to excuse for junior church. And quite frankly, Georgianne, it's, where is Georgianne? She left, but she's probably praying. Yeah, she's with the kids. Um, we're thankful because, that she did that because this is a little bit of a PG-13 sermon. Um, quite, we're, we're studying through the life of Joseph, and if you remember, and if you've read this story before, you'll re- be reminded that Joseph uh, goes through a time when some pretty iffy things happen in his life, and we're going to be talking about those this morning. So if you're at all concerned, you may want to you know, talk to your kids or what have you. PG-13 doesn't mean R, okay? <laughs> um, this won't be uh, sensuality for the sake of sensuality, but it is a story that includes some stuff about sex. So be warned. Genesis chapter 39, if you can turn there in your Bible, it'll be on the screen behind me as well. You can look there. That'll be the same version as I'm reading from. And I'm going to read this story in uh, five different scenes. There's five different moments in the life of Joseph in this, scene, in this story that we're going to walk through. And Tim, Tim named this sermon. And, he, and when, when he named it, when I got it, he's, and he picked this week for me, you know. He, said, he decides when we're doing this or that or the other thing. And so he, he said, when temptation is awesome, well, that would be great for Josh, you know. And so here I am uh, with this idea. But... Frankly, this passage is all about temptation, and temptation is not always, you know, it, it doesn't feel bad, right? If it, w- if it did feel bad, it wouldn't actually be tempting. And so this morning as you walk through this story, I'm hoping that you can dive in and kind of feel what the people in this story would have felt, that you can put yourself in their place and you can imagine and you can kind of connect yourself to what takes place in the story, Genesis chapter 39. Let me begin reading with verse 1. It says, Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, the Egyptian official of Pharaoh, the captain of the bodyguard, brought him or bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. Now, you'll agree with me that this is, if you were here last week, it is out of the frying pan and into the fire, right? He was in a, in a well or in a cistern, in a hole in the ground. He was going to be left for dead. And then eventually his, his brothers get a better idea and say, let's make some money after him. Uh, and they sell him to actually people who were probably his cousins, the Ishmaelites. And these Bedouin caravan leaders, they took him from his homeland and they traveled to Egypt down uh, south of the Mediterranean. And in there he gets sold in a slave market to this guy named Potiphar. His life is not getting better. Would you agree? Wouldn't you agree? That his life is, it it continues to face significant adversity. Now, the next thing that happens is interesting. It's surprising. So watch in this first scene as we go for a twist. It says, verse 2, the Lord was with Joseph, so he became a successful man. How can you be a slave and a successful person at the same time? You have to recognize the irony. And he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. Now his master saw that the Lord was with him and how the Lord caused all that he had to do, 
all he did to prosper in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight and became his personal servant, and he made him overseer over his house, and all that he owned he put in, in Joseph's charge. It came about that from the time he made him overseer in his house, and over all that he owned, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house on account of Joseph. Thus the Lord's blessing was upon all that he owned in the house and in the field. So he left everything he owned in Joseph's charge, and with him there he did not concern himself with anything except the food which he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. Scene one. Scene one. You'll notice a few words in there. Words that seem kind of repeated. They're words like in verse 2, the Lord was with Joseph. And I kind of highlighted that already, but then it says he goes on to be a successful man. And then in verse 3, the Lord was with him. It says it again. And he caused all that he did to prosper. Verse 4, so he found favor with Potiphar. Verse 5, the Lord blessed Potiphar's house on account of Joseph. The Lord's blessing was upon all that Potiphar owned in the house and in the field because of Joseph. Okay, so we have to kind of think for a quick second. We have to stop. Because when we go through a dark moment, what we're tempted to believe is that God's plan has somehow become shipwrecked, right? At the moment when Joseph is sold into slavery, one would have guessed that it was time to give up. It was time to realize that God had abandoned the plan that he had prophesied. Remember, Joseph had gotten these two dreams, and the dreams had spoken to him of the role that he would play in the lives of his family. And he told his brothers and his family about it, and they didn't react very well, did they? And so there is this prediction floating around, and this whole thing seems to be possibly dying on the vine. That prophecy, the idea that Joseph would do great things, that's not going to actually work out now, right? But the narrator tells us that God blessed Joseph even in Egypt. God didn't leave him. God made him so blessed that people started to notice him. Potiphar noticed him and put him in charge of all of the goods in his house. And all of the things in his house start to get blessed because Joseph himself is blessed. What happens when somebody gets blessed? They get noticed, right? There's a pecking order in every job and in every family. There's something that happens where when you see people in different roles, you see them either shine or maybe fail. And what's happening in the life of Joseph is he gets put in a role and unexpectedly he shines. And people start to watch. They start to observe. They see him for who he is. And Potiphar is the first of those people. Why is Joseph blessed? We need to ask ourselves that. And when we've started the Joseph series, we talked about God weaving. Remember, we have this great painting over here, and it describes Joseph's coat of many colors. But it has on it words like redemption, resilience, endurance, righteousness, obedience, faith, all of these things that God is weaving inside of a human being. But God is even weaving a larger story than the one he's weaving specifically with Joseph. God, all the way back to Abraham, Joseph's great-grandfather had promised that he would make Abraham a nation. And that nation would inhabit a specific piece of land and all of the world would get blessed through this relationship between God and this man. Do you remember this prophecy? And so we're moving forward and now we realize that this man's great-grandson Joseph is sold into slavery where he could not possibly be a blessing to anyone, right? Wrong. God's plan moves forward with Joseph, even into adversity, even into conflict, even into Egypt. And he goes there with God. Somehow when we get in the dark moments of our life, we somehow think that God has abandoned us. And this story reminds us that God has not left the scene. God is still very much active. He is working and he is weaving. And the story will come to a culmination point which will truly be glorious. 
Joseph might have suspected at this point something else, but the facts tell us, the fact of this story tells us that God was not done. And as he poured into Joseph this blessing, the people around him started to notice. And Joseph got put more and more in charge of greater responsibility. And as a result of that, people even took more notice. Who notices in a moment like that? Who can you imagine? Speculate with me. Who was noticing Joseph at this moment? Some of you haven't remembered that I actually expect you to talk back to me. My kids always remember that, and you never do. I don't understand how this works. Who's noticing? Who's observing? Eventually, Pharaoh will notice. What else? Potiphar's wife will notice. Who else? Other servants. People are recognizing this guy has skill, right? This guy has skill. I remember when I was in college... Me and another guy from my dorm, we decided to go play basketball. And we played one-on-one, and we were, we were like playing for an hour. And we were, you know, I'm not a great in-shape sort of guy, even at that point in my life. We're playing one-on-one, and um, after an hour, we're really tired, you know. And the basketball got a little iffy, you know. I mean, it, just, it was less skill and more fouls every time somebody drove the lane. And then all of a sudden, the New York Knicks whole coaching staff came into the gym. And they sat down at the seats right at the end of the court at which we were playing one-on-one. And later I realized the New York Knicks were in town and they were having a players-only meeting in the upstairs of our gymnasium complex. And so the coaches were down there just, you know, wasting time. My game, did it get better or did it get worse? It got worse. <laughs> I didn't know it could get worse, but I remember sitting there looking at those guys. I'm trying to remember who was the coach. I think it was Pat Riley still. And I'm just looking at these guys as they're all lined up at the end of the row. They're watching me. And what's moment, you know, people can see you and not see you. You know what I mean? They, they saw me, but they didn't notice me. I, nobody asked for my number after that and wondered if they could draft me. There was no expectation. You know, I just was never that great a ball player. But you know, there is something that changes when people are watching us. And what happens in the life of Joseph is he starts to rise above. And people, unlike my story, people start to realize this guy is something to behold. Steve, you said Potiphar's wife and you blew the story. But in the first... Everybody noticed... But one of those people was Potiphar's wife. In scene one, I want to write on the whiteboard just to keep track of how this works, but in scene one, what do you notice Joseph is? What would you say represent, what word represents Joseph in this scene? He's a blessing. He's a blank. He's blessed to be a blessing. So in scene one, He's blessing. And you know what? You know why? Because God is weaving, even inside of the house of Potiphar, even inside this foreign context as Joseph's a slave, God is doing something remarkable. And people are starting to notice. Now, join with me as I read the second scene, and you can catch up with me in verse 7. And it, tell, it starts to tell us about who is noticing specifically. It says, It came about after these events that Potiphar's wife looked with desire at Joseph, and she said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold with me here, my master does not concern himself with anything in the the house. And he has put all that he owns in my charge. There is no one greater in this house than I. And he has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? As she spoke to Joseph day after day, he did not listen to her to lie beside her or be with her. Those words are interesting. Who notices Joseph? It's Potiphar's wife. And what does she wish for? She actually starts to have a conversation with him. 
The only words in this little vignette that we see so far that she speaks are lie with me. But we know from what it says that she says a lot more than that. Day in and day out, as Joseph is going around his work, he is determined, he is undistracted, he is working at what he is called to do, and he is somebody who is very skilled, and so he's moving forward, and she is finding a way to get proximate to him. She is in his vicinity, quote-unquote accidentally, right? She's finding a way to manipulate her way into his life, and the conversation starts to occur, and the first steps of it might have been somewhat flirtatious. She's looking for a relationship. And at first, it probably did not look like a sexual one. At first, it just looked like some sort of conversation, some sort of just talk between the mistress and the slave. But eventually, it develops further, and it becomes obvious, more and more obvious, what she's after. And so you see this relationship develop. And what's taking place is that what was once a blessing is taking a whole different shape. Someone has noticed Joseph, and she's noticed him, in all the wrong ways, right? You've seen this before. The story takes place not just in Genesis. The story takes place in the United States. The story takes place in the lives of pastors, in the lives of presidents, in the lives of average ordinary people. This story is a story we've heard before. Wouldn't you agree? It's a tragic story. So what is Joseph in this second scene? What would you say he is in this second scene? I would say he's a person. And you'll know what that means a little bit later as we get on to the next scenes. But he's gone from being a blessing, just somebody who's worth watching. You know, I remember as a kid watching Joe Montana play football. And I remember honestly in high school, after coming to faith, thanking God that I lived in the era of Joe Montana. I mean, you know, it's really true. I take, I'm a 49ers fan. It's very serious. I actually thought, this guy, I mean, it's just amazing. You know, it really is worth honoring God for when you see somebody doing what they do well, no matter what it is, even if it's just as funny as a football game. You watch Michael Jordan play basketball. You watch a great pianist play the piano. You watch an orchestra comp- work out this symphony and, and, and do this amazing piece of music. It changes your life. Yesterday I was in the art museum and I was watching these, these painters. They haven't been alive in hundreds of years, you know, but I was seeing their artwork and I was going, wow. There was one guy who spent 10 years on this great piece of art. It was this great big piece of glass and there was some sculpture in the middle of it and he took it to one show and the transporters had it tip over on the truck as they drove away. And the, the, the glass is just smashed, and he would never replace it. It's still there, sitting in the Philadelphia Art Museum. He put all this effort into it. You know, it's worth seeing when God blesses another person. And what I was watching when I was watching this art museum stuff, it was just God doing amazing things. But this woman takes that blessing. She takes the things that are worth being thankful for. The fact that God was putting his presence inside a man and he was active inside that man's life. She takes that blessing and she turns it to something completely different. She starts to look at him as a person, and not just any person, but a person whom she wants to have a relationship with with. Scary thought. Read verse 3 with me. Read verse, I'm sorry, scene 3. In verse 11 it says, Now it happened one day that Joseph went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the household was there inside. That lets us know that she had been around him over and over again, but there had always been witnesses. Now the witnesses are gone. She caught him by his garment saying, Lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand and fled and went outside. What is he in this scene? 
He's gone from being a blessing to being a person who she wants to have a relationship with. You know, author John Irving, somebody who I like to read, writes about lust. And he says that lust is a true premonition that damnation is real. What does he mean by that? You know, there's this concept that goes along with damnation. It's called hell. And hell is thought to be a lake of fire. Revelation refers to it as such. And it says that the people there burn eternally. And what John Irving is saying is literally when we feel lust, when we desire something that is inappropriate, we're looking at a good thing, but internally we start to burn for it. And maybe we don't burn from the outside in. Maybe it's not like hell. Maybe we burn from the inside out. And our desire actually is wounding us and damaging us and destroying us from internal regions to the outside till our actions start to move in that direction. What what happens in scene three is what was born as just an observation of blessing and moves into an attempt at a relationship becomes what it will ultimately be in any one of these situations if we allow it. It becomes naked desire, right? And what does Joseph become? He's no longer a blessing And frankly, I don't think he's even a person anymore. Now he's just an object. He is just the thing on her wish list. And she would do anything to get past all of the inhibitions, all of the social distinctions, the classism, all of the stuff that keeps them apart. And so at this place, he is just an object, and she is willing to make any sacrifice, tragic sacrifices, in order to make this relationship occur. And she approaches him with the words, lie with me, and he does what? He runs. He runs. The object decides that he doesn't want to be an object. The object decides that he, in his mind, is still a person. And in the mind of God, he's still a blessing. But in Potiphar's wife's eyes, this poor guy is just an object. You know, when we read this story, most of the time, if you've been in church a while, you've heard it, you, you think of it from the perspective of Joseph. Now, this may tell you something about me. And if it does, well, don't take it that way. But we'll just say that I find it easier to put myself in another person's shoes in this story. You know, Joseph is upstanding. Joseph does the right thing. Joseph, by the end of the story, he shines, right? But Potiphar's wife, she's somebody who I think we can identify with. Each one of us goes through moments of temptation. Each one of us is faced with a struggle where we look inside ourselves and we realize we want something that we obviously know. It's honest. We can just look at it and say that is not God's plan for our life. But when we look at it, we've just got to have it. We can identify with this woman, right? It may not be sexual. It may be something else. It may be a car. It may be a house. It might be any number of things. It may be the way you want other people to see you that somehow you are shaping your reputation in the public image so that people can look at you a certain way. But whatever it is, it is an idol. We have somehow put it in the place of God and we have decided that we would rather go after this object than the plan of God and we have put it in the position, the all-important position of God in our lives. That is too easy to do. And so at this moment, she says, I would rather have Joseph than be right. I would rather have Joseph than be true and loyal to my husband. I would rather have Joseph than forgo all of the whispering that's almost assuredly happening amongst the servants. If they're noticing Joseph and his skill, they're assuredly noticing Joseph and the attraction his mistress has for him. Wouldn't you agree? And so at this point in the story, he is merely an object, and he's an object that doesn't play fair. He runs, and she's mad. 
What takes place next changes it all over again. When she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled outside, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he is brought in a Hebrew to us to make sport of us. The he in this story is Potiphar. See, Potiphar has brought in a Hebrew to make sport of us. He came in to me to lie with me, and I screamed. And when he heard that I raised my voice and screamed, he left his garment beside me and fled and went outside. And just for dramatic effect, it tells us that Potiphar's wife left his garment beside her until his master came home. This woman is capable of spinning a web. Wouldn't you agree? What is Joseph in this part of the story? He's gone from being a blessing and something that God is working with and doing amazing things with to being a person who another person wants to have a relationship with. And when that lust goes too far, when the desire is far from appropriate, he becomes merely an object. What does she refer to him as in this part of the story? The Hebrew. The Hebrew. Now that may not sound like much to you. The Bible's filled with Hebrews, but Egypt is not filled with Hebrews. Hebrews were the people who were descended of Abraham, and she stereotypes them. At this moment, what does she do? She says that a sin like this, somebody who would actually approach me and think they could touch me, even though they're, a, they're just one of the people in this house, why would anybody think that he could do this? Why would he do it? Because he's one of those people. He's from the other side of the tracks. He's from that other ethnicity. He is stereotyped. It's not actually Joseph anymore. In fact, at this point in the story, when he's a person, he's Joseph. When he's a blessing, he's the Joseph that God is going to use. And when he's a person, he is Joseph, and she probably calls him by his first name. Here she just says, you come lie with me. You come be in my bed. She refers to him without a name. And by this fourth scene, By the fourth scene, she refers to him by his whole ethnic group. He's just another person of those Hebrews. And of course, that's why he would act this way. That's why he would approach her when he shouldn't have. That's the way she spins it. And so in scene four, what happens is she's turned a man into an object, and now she's turned him into merely a stereotype. And he can be explained away as one of those social misfits, somebody who doesn't play by our values, somebody who is different than us. And we can somehow say, well, they're just that other person. You know, when we get tempted by sin, when we start to think about something that we absolutely seem to want and need and obsess over, what happens is that we eventually get to the place where we despise it, where we dislike it, where we hate it. I had a guy I worked with, he's 18 years old, got out of high school, got a job at the same place I did, started to make some money, decided he was sick of driving his parents' jalopies, and he got a brand-new car, went out to the Ford dealer, got a Ford Focus, drove it for three days. He's all excited about this car, talking about how fast it goes. One day it's kind of icy. He pulls out in front of the factory where we worked, and he hits the gas, and he thinks it's enough, and it didn't take off as fast as he thought, didn't realize there was a car coming from the left. Third day into that car, it gets smashed and totaled. Told me two weeks later that he was going to have to continue making payments on a car that was just a scrap heap. And his insurance wasn't enough to buy him a new one and not enough to pay for the one he'd lost. You know, I would love to know how many times in our life we sacrifice or maybe we even manipulate to get what we want in life, to get ahead, to think we're getting where we need to get. We, we somehow go into greater debt than we have any business going into. We maybe subtly deceive others into thinking we're more than we are. We somehow 
convince ourselves we must have this greater house. And the truth is, we usually want things. Why? Because they're blessed of God, because they're good. Whatever they are, they are good things. We don't get tempted by bad. We get tempted by good. But then we want them in the wrong way. And when we start to develop a relationship with them, we, whether it's a person or even a thing, we start to think of them subtly differently. They're the thing we obsess over. And eventually they become merely an object that we must have. And then after a while, six months in, the car gets a ding on it. Somebody at the grocery store opens the door next to your car and they put just a ding in the side panel, right? Six months later, you get into a fender bender. Two years later, a rust spot appears, especially if you're from Michigan. You know, these things, the stuff that we have that we think we want, we get down the road and we realize we don't want it. And somehow we value things differently depending on how we acquire them. If we get the things the right way, we love what we have. But if we get them the wrong way, they turn to dust in our hands and they turn out to be everything we never wanted. We thought we wanted it. We were obsessed over it. And when we get to the final point, we suddenly have to explain it away. Well, that was just a Ford. I mean, it wasn't actually like a Lexus or anything. You know what I'm saying? It wasn't that great. It wasn't, BM, it wasn't a Beamer. It was just a Ford Focus. And the guy moved on, right? He's never looking back on that car and thinking that was the most amazing car. But when he first got it, you, you could see the, the neon blue color of it glinting in his eyes when he worked at his machine on our factory floor. You know? It's amazing how we think we want things. And they disappear from our want list after we've had them for a while. Joseph becomes a mere stereotype. That's not where it ends. It gets worse. Potiphar comes home. Verse 17. Then she spoke to him with these words. The Hebrew slave whom you brought to us, came in to me to make sport of me. And as I raised my voice and screamed, he left his garment beside me and fled outside. Notice it's the Hebrew slave whom he got for her, whom you brought to us, she says. And in verse 19, Now when his master heard the words of his wife, which she spoke to him, saying, This is what your slave did to me, his anger burned. His anger burned. So what's Joseph in the final scene? Scene five. He's a slave. He's gone from being a blessing to a person, to an object, to a stereotype, a group of people who aren't important. I'm out of space. And he's now somebody who can be bought and sold. He is like any object that you can buy at Best Buy for $29.99. When you buy that object, you can do whatever you want with it. You buy an antenna. For your, for your television, or you buy, a, you buy a CD for your CD player, and if you step on it on the way out in the parking lot, you drop it on the cement and you step on it, and you just say, I'm done with this thing, I'm already had it. Nobody cares, right? It's just an object. Wouldn't you agree? And so when it gets to that place where it's just an object, you can buy, you can sell, you can kill, you can end it, because it is yours. A better word for slave might be a possession. Joseph, at this point in his life, is merely a possession. And she says, Potiphar, it's this possession you brought into our house. He's not even worth being called an ethnic group anymore. He's not really that valuable. He's not even an object. He's not a person. He's just something we can buy and sell. This woman is hateful. She hates this guy. Wouldn't you agree? I wish we had time to turn to it, but there's a story in 2 Samuel about one of King David's sons who absolutely must have a woman, and he does actually get to her. 
It's a tragic story that he gets to the place where he actually takes advantage of her. In the moments that follow, the Bible says that he hates the woman whom he just slept with. Because when we get what we want and we get it in the wrong way, it destroys that thing for us and we lose any ability to value it. And so this man becomes a stereotype and just something to be bought and sold, a possession, a slave. And we get to the end of the story and we realize that what looked like it could have been a romantic love affair has turned into anything but. And frankly, if Joseph would have given in, it would be the same story. Eventually, this woman would have tired of him, right? Eventually, it would have broken apart and destroyed them just the way it is now. Temptation. We all face it. And frankly, I don't know if you can get so far as to buy this story because it's an extreme example. We tend to make things that are sexual dramatic and this woman is obviously filled with sexual desire. But whatever's taking place in this story can be duplicated in any life in this room. Each one of us can live this out, wanting things that God never wanted for us. They are temptations. They are things that will destroy us and destroy the things we want. I want to close with just a few application points, three to be specific. And then we're going to look at one last verse. When we are tempted, it's not generally by bad things, but good. Wouldn't you agree? Whatever that person we have to have is, Whatever that thing we have to have is, it was probably at its origins created by God. And it's attractive because it has his DNA in it. Somehow God has made it, and that's why we want it. We don't get attracted to evil, bad, nasty things. We don't get attracted to things that are terrible. We get attracted to beauty, things that are good. But when we want them at the wrong time, they become the wrong thing. When we want them in the wrong way, they become the wrong thing, and it destroys any plan that God might have. Point two, when we take the good work of God and use it for our own selfish gain, we keep ourselves from being a part of the plan. I want to just retell this story for a quick second and think, what if at this moment Potiphar's wife, as this slave enters her house, and she and her husband start to realize that he is skilled above all other slaves, and he is a remarkable individual, what if they start to talk him up to the nobility that they hang around with? What if their social circle kind of catches on that there is a great man who has been brought to Egypt accidentally as a slave? What if he could rise above to the place we would eventually get to anyway? And Potiphar could have helped him get there, and Potiphar's wife the same. What if that would have been the story that would have been told? You know, the Bible doesn't tell us this woman's name, and we never hear from her again. Potiphar's wife goes down as just a byword, a word that, just a person that's a character in a story, a subplot that we don't have to deal with. Who we do have to deal with is Joseph, who moves on. And frankly, though she tries to destroy him, she doesn't get it to him. He ends up becoming all that God ever wanted him to be because God and his weaving and his plan is unbreakable in this moment. She tries to do an amazing act and get God's plan off to the side and make it her plan. And in fact, all she ends up doing is taking herself and making herself unavailable to what God was doing. This could have been a very, very different story. It didn't have to be this way, but this woman, when she gave into desire and when she gave into temptation, she put herself in a place where God wasn't going to use her, couldn't use her, because she wasn't interested in the plan of God. She was interested in her own plan. 
And when we take our plans and we put them in the place of God and we create an idol and we obsess and go after an object like this, what ends up happening is we make ourselves unavailable for the greater scheme of things. And God, whose plan continues to move in every time and in every place, never stopped by something so small as an actual human being, that plan, that plan is not something that Potiphar's wife can be a part of anymore. Tragic, isn't it? Third point, when we take the blessings of God and use them selfishly as occurs in this story, then the result is the breaking of relationships and the dehumanizing of others. Just read one more verse with me. Read one more verse. It's a telling verse. Verse 20, So Joseph's master took him and put him into the jail, the place where the king's prisoners were combined, and he was there in jail. Now that may not seem remarkable to you. You've probably read this story or heard it in Sunday school. But let me ask you a question. Let me ask you a question. You're a slave in Egypt. You're an object to be bought and sold. If you die, who comes looking for you? No one. If there's a murder and you're the one who gets murdered, is there a prosecuting attorney that cares? Are there any lawyers that get involved? Will this ever hit the courtroom? This doesn't go to any court of the land. This guy can be killed at any moment. Why is he not destroyed instantly? You know why? Because Potiphar didn't buy it. You know why Potiphar didn't kill this man instantly? Is because he knew who the rat was. It was his wife. And what do you do with a man who has attracted your wife and that you can get rid of in an easy way? You push him off to the side and you put him in jail. But Potiphar's conscience, I suspect, wouldn't quite let him murder him. He was still somewhat of a noble guy. And so he puts him in jail and says, I can't bear to have Joseph around me. But the fact of the matter is that Potiphar had noticed his slave's whispers. He saw the look in his wife's eye and he knew that this was way too much hatred for what it looked like. What she was making it seem could not have actually been the case. And so he says, listen, you can go to jail. But what we don't know, except by human experience, is what the storyline looks like in the house of Potiphar after this moment. After watching marriages for years, you've watched them, I've watched them, you can agree with me that this marriage hit a train wreck. This was a collision course and there was destruction in the future because no longer does this man trust his wife. Wouldn't you agree? And what happens is the glint in his eye, the bounce in his step, all of that is gone the next day when he comes home because his wife has turned out to be disloyal and untrustworthy. And the, the, the attraction that was probably once there had gone by the wayside. And who knows what developed out of that whole context. But what I can tell you is this woman destroyed the respect of the people who were watching her. Joseph was standing out for all the right reasons, and I promise you that Potiphar's wife was standing out for all the wrong. And so when Potiphar comes along and sees her, he understands after this, and the moment is what it is. And without a divine reconciliation, without a moment of true forgiveness and repentance, this thing was going to be crushed until she admitted what she did and failure was absolutely owned by her. This story came to a nasty conclusion, I guarantee it. And this story has as one of its, as its, as its effects that when we somehow get tempted and we act on that temptation, we turn other people into anything other than a human being, anything other than a blessing. We take what God is doing and we turn it into an object and then we get mad at it and we hate it and we throw it away. This woman absolutely dehumanizes a wonderful man. And in her eyes, she turns, he turns into the worst. God's plan is not destroyed at this moment. Her ability to be a part of that plan is destroyed. And what's more is she has ruined the trust 
that she has with every other person in her life. It's a destructive pattern. Point one, when we are tempted, it's generally by good things. Joseph's a good-looking guy, and Joseph's a guy who's blessed by God. It was God in her life, or God in his life, that attracted Potiphar's wife in the first place. Point two, when we actually give in to temptation, it's not everything else, and it's certainly not the plan of God that we destroy. What we end up doing is destroying our ability to be a part of the plan. And the only solution is to repent and turn around. When we get to point three, what it tells us is that when we, when we take the, the bait and we give ourselves over to temptation, we dehumanize others and other things that God has blessed for good, and we turn them into something much less than what they originally were. For us, they will never be good. They become hurtful and damaging and evil. Joseph was not a bad guy, but the effects that he had and the desire this woman had for him, it destroyed this woman. It destroyed her marriage, and it destroyed her home. So this morning, temptation is indigenous. There is no person in this room who does not get tempted. Jesus, the Son of God, was tempted. We read the stories in the Gospels. So agree with me that what you're experiencing, it may just seem like human nature. It may just seem like, well, everybody does it. It is absolutely going to hurt you. It is going to hurt your ability to be a part of the plan of God, and it is going to hurt the people who surround you. Don't do it. Seek God's plan. Seek what he's doing in every moment. Look at the larger picture and say, okay, God, how do I use this good thing and not give into it in a tempting way? How do we just put it in the right perspective and realize, God, what did you want? What did you want for this? What did you want? Maybe it's to pray. Maybe it's to build a platform. This woman could have done great things by building a platform underneath Joseph and using what she was seeing for good. Instead, she decided it had to be subnavigated by her own selfish desire. Tragic, tragic consequences. Join me in prayer.